Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you. And I, I want to thank Jamie and Royce and the worship team. It is so good to worship King Jesus with you. And please, let's continue in prayer for our country and for our leaders. There is so much evil about, and the need for divine guidance has never been greater. May the problems we face drive us and our leaders to their knees in search of Jesus. Now, in this summer of chaos, many of us are rethinking our assumptions. In our series called Rethink, we're working our way through some of life's biggest questions with a view to making sure we are living on a firm foundation in a world that feels like it's crumbling all around us. Now, last week, we looked at the question, who is Jesus? We looked at four possible conclusions about Jesus based on a lot of data that Jesus was a myth, a manipulator, a madman, or the Messiah. As we looked at the different reports of historians and the various arguments, I trust that you were brought to some clarity in your own assumptions and your own convictions. But if Jesus was so unique and amazing, why was he killed and killed so brutally? Jesus died the most horrible, torturous death imaginable. This picture uh, from the Passion of the Christ just is, a, is an imaginary glimpse at how horrible it must have been. Total contempt and rejection, killed in dishonor outside the city gate. They scourged his back with a whip, with glass and sharp stones. He was beaten severely. He experienced loss of blood, dehydration, asphyxiation. The father left him and his friends spiritually abandoned him. Now, the location of this is marked by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's on that picture you see there. The smaller black dome marks the place of Jesus' crucifixion. He was alone, naked, in total emotional and physical abuse. He was displayed for all to see, actually by the Damascus Road, uh, heading outside the gate of the city. Thousands of passers-by mocked him. And that larger black dome you see there marks the place of his burial. Now, this little schematic that I'm showing you helps us see the terrain at the time. Imagine the scene. And when it was over, in Jesus' mind, he decided when to give up his spirit. His legs were not broken as most of these crucifixion victims were to fulfill the prophecy that his bones would be intact. Psalm 22 actually describes a crucifixion in quite a lot of detail, and that was written 700 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. This is a violent and brutal death perfected by Roman executioners. Placed in the nearby tomb of Joseph Arimathea, Jesus lay dead. Now, the archaeological evidence on this site in Jerusalem is a 9.9 .9 out of 10 on the Meyer archaeological scale. So those are the facts, but that's only the beginning. That leads me to today's question, which is, why did Jesus die? 
There are countless books written by scholars of all persuasions about this question. One prominent pastor and scholar, John Piper, wrote a book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Actually, you can get a free PDF of that book, download, uh, and it would be a very profitable use of your time if you wanted to go a bit deeper than I can go today. The link to that PDF is in the description of today's YouTube video. <clears throat> now, I'm going to keep it simple and look at four answers to this question, followed by some reflections and applications. So, Father, as we look now into your word, into the amazing death, the, the supernatural death of your son and all that it accomplished, all that it changed in human history. We ask that you speak to us individually so this becomes something personal for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why, Dennis, are you doing four reasons? Um, well, it's because there's four key words in the Bible that were used by the authors of the New Testament to describe what the death of Jesus accomplished. One word is translated atonement or propitiation. Uh, another word, the second, is sacrifice. The third is ransom. And the fourth is redemption. These are powerful visual words that explode with meaning and relevance because they hold the great promises of God made towards you and me. So let me unpack those one at a time, and then I'll give some conclusions and some application. So the first word is atonement. Propitiation is the translation that you get in some English Bible versions. The Greek word is hilasterion. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, when God makes garments of skin for Adam and Eve. The animal blood atones for their sin of disobedience, as they are sent out of the garden. That theme of animal blood would continue through God's instructions for the tabernacle, for the temple. There would literally be 1,100 years of sacrifices at the tabernacle or temple that were meant to atone for people's sin. There was actually a day uh, that this was done uh, the, the atoning of sin uh, is the life of the animal is in the blood and therefore the shed of the blood to cover the sin. There must be blood and death to cover sin. So to atone for our sin, translated also propitiation, means to appease the wrath of God because God hates our sin. So this is the picture of how God designed it. It was instructions for the high priest on the day of atonement. That's in Leviticus chapter 16. The Jews call it Yom Kippur. And I'm going to read that section. I'm going to be in verse 11 all the way down uh, to verse 17. And here's the instructions for the high priest. Aaron, who is the first high priest, shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain into the most holy 
of holies. He is to put the incense into the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. Now, this is the top of the Ark of the Covenant where the two cherubim were. And you see in that picture, the priest is there uh, ministering uh, to the Lord. The fragrant incense is burning. And then he takes some of the bull's blood and with his finger, he sprinkles it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and the rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement for the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Now, because God is perfect and holy, he must punish sinners. But in his mercy, he found a way out for us, which is through our kinsman redeemer, that is God becoming a human being to be like us and to uh, play the role of the high priest. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we see this. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So Paul, later on in the book of Romans, in chapter 3, verse 25, would write it this way. He would say, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So in other words, the obedient atonement of Jesus can be applied to us by faith. If we believe in Jesus, our sin will be atoned for. This is what's called substitution or substitutionary atonement. That's a theological term that simply means that instead of being evaluated at the end of your life on your own life, you can hand Jesus' scorecard in instead of yours. By his death, we are made right. And that is called by theologians justification, which literally means just as if we'd never sinned. So atonement, and the word is interesting because it's A-T-O-N-E, at one meant, at one with God. Jesus brings us to be at one with God through the atonement. And in that Romans 3.25 verse, you saw that Christ is a sacrifice of atonement. So now I'm going to move to our second word, which is sacrifice. That's the Greek word thysia. Now, as we just saw in Romans 3.25, Jesus is a sacrifice for us, God dying in our place to pay for our sin. So the first place this word comes up in the Bible is Genesis 22, 
when God tests Abraham with the order to sacrifice his son Isaac. Notice in this story that they are sent to Mount Moriah, which is the very same rock outcropping in Jerusalem where Jesus was killed. Once Abraham passes the test, the Lord provides a male lamb, and the painting that you're looking at, Caravaggio, you see the lamb in the bottom right corner there. The lamb is caught by his horns in a thicket. That's a picture of the lamb of God with the crown of thorns. This Genesis 22 is a picture of Jesus, so much so that when he gets baptized, Jesus, the father says that you are my son, from Psalm 2, whom I love. That's from Genesis 22. He's literally saying in his baptism, you're going to be the lamb that dies instead of Isaac. Now, Hebrews 10 says it this way, and this compares now the typical high priest with Jesus. Starting in verse 11, day after day, every high priest stands and every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice by Jesus makes all of those following Jesus in the process of being made holy. So we can say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was sacrificed on the cross, undeserving. He did not deserve that. He was perfect. He sacrificed for you and me, dying to cover our sins through a gruesome and undeserved death. So Hebrews chapter 10 continues in verse 19, and it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, the veil that, that ripped open when he died, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's what the sacrifice does for us. It, it is in our place, and it cleanses our sin away. The blood of Jesus takes, the sacrificial blood takes the sin away. That leads us to uh, our third word, which is from the word ransom, which means to be taken away from slavery to sin. The Greek word there is lutron. So Jesus came to ransom us from slavery to sin. In Mark 10, verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in the first century, Picture a first-century slave market. The painting you're looking at is illustrating what this was like, the feeling of being absolutely trapped. Jesus knew we were in bondage to all kinds of sin, 
And ultimately, we were in bondage to the tyranny of death. Most of us do not realize that we are slaves and that we need ransoming. We are living here in the land of the free, but we know from just looking at the news that we are not free. We are consumed by food and obesity, sex and pornography, boredom and entertainment, work and technology, alcohol and drugs, racial unrest. Look, this is just a few of the, of the issues, but this is what we are in bondage to. And so the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 15, it's for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a new deal between God and human beings, that those who are called may receive the promise the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, there's that word ransom again, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So ransoming is actually bringing us into true freedom. So to set us free from the penalty of sin, which is justification, to to set us free from the power of sin, which is the process of sanctification that followers of Jesus are going through, and then ultimately to set us free from the presence of sin when we get our glorified resurrection bodies uh, when Jesus returns. So what he has done is he has ransomed us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He has ransomed us out of being orphans into being sons and daughters in his family. He has ransomed us out of addiction and misery and brokenness into his glorious light. Ransomed means that we are set free. And that brings us to the fourth word, which is redemption, apolytrosis in Greek. Now, a classic story of redemption in the Bible is the story of Ruth, when the kinsman redeemer the picture of Jesus, the man Boaz, marries the widow Ruth and restores this death-ridden family of all these men who had died, uh, of the uh, the other widow, the, the grand widow, so to speak, Naomi. Well, Jesus does the same with us. He redeems what we broke, and he makes it new for every person on earth, no matter where you were born, what race you're part of, what nationality and ancestry you have, or what you have done. And here's how Paul describes that in the book of Romans, and watch for the redemption word. So I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, that means apart from following the Ten Commandments, the righteousness of God has been made known. It's available to us because the law and the prophets talk about this, the new covenant. It's this righteousness of God is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are all justified freely, that is made just before God, declared not guilty by his grace through the redemption, there's the redemption word, that came by Christ Jesus. 
Now, you're looking at a gravestone image. And what we are redeemed from is eternal death. The, the movie Taken, I, I love Liam Neeson, but the movie Taken is a picture of this because his teenage daughter makes a trip to Europe. She's abducted by this professional ring of sex racketeers and drug, drug lords, and they're violent. And her, she is facing certain death. But her father is a CIA agent, and he has skills, and he goes after her. And he goes after her and after her and after her until he saves her. From absolute certain death and misery and slavery, he redeems her. And this is what Jesus has done for us. You may not know this, but Jesus has been coming after you your whole life. Just like the guy in Taken. He's coming after you. He's wooing you. Maybe you've been invited to a Bible study. Maybe you've been invited to church. Maybe somebody gave you a Bible when you were young. Maybe there's somebody in your life now who's constantly talking to you about God. Well, there's a reason for that. They've been sent by the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, because he's about redemption. So in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, we read this. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. See the difference? We go from animal sacrifice, which cannot, it, 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 it covers people for a while, but it cannot cover for eternity. You needed an eternal savior to save you for eternity, And this is what he's done. He's, he's obtained for us eternal redemption. So that's, that's the four words, atonement or propitiation, right? Sacrifice, ransom, and redemption. These words redeem us from death, redeem us from the grave, redeem us from certain annihilation. And so I want to close today by getting a little bit more personal and, and to bring you and me, all of us, into this story by asking that simple question, who killed Jesus? You know, some people think the Romans killed him. And that, of course, is true. They were his executioners, but they are also welcome to salvation, to redemption. The Jews, the Jews turned him in and accused him, but they are also welcome to salvation. The first part of the church was mostly Jewish, and there, there is a time coming when all of the Jewish people on the earth will see Christ, and they'll know that Jesus is their Messiah. This is what Pinchas Lapide said last week when I talked about his acceptance of the resurrection. But here's an interesting one. The Father. You see, the Father made a promise to Abraham. And he went into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And you know, Abraham cut the animals in half. But then God and Abraham didn't walk through there together. Abraham, you know, he did. He shooed the, the flies, the vultures off the, the animals for a while, but he fell asleep. He was asleep, friends. What we see is that a, a fire pot goes through. That's the father. And then behind it, a torch goes through. That's the light of the world. In Genesis 15, the father signed Jesus' death sentence. 
because Abraham would do nothing in this covenant. And right now, in the covenant with Jesus, we do nothing. All we do is believe. Jesus went through and died for us. And the person who sent him to death was the Father. And the Father did it for our salvation. The Father gave the very best thing he had in the whole world, the most valuable thing, his Son. And Jesus pleased the Father completely. Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of the Father against us. Jesus took all the condemnation off of us for our sin. But you know what? The people who really killed Jesus, that's you and me. See, we put him there, and all of our ancestors put him there on the cross by our disobedience and our sin. Now, you may have never fully realized that God's laws applied to you, that in lying and stealing and coveting, you've actually violated his word and you have become an object of his wrath. You put him on the cross. Further, by failing to believe in the Son and obey the teaching of Jesus, you have rejected, so far, I hope, the only way God has made for you to be forgiven and restored into a redemptive relationship. Now, at the moment, if you have rejected Jesus, you are without atonement, you are without sacrifice, you are without ransom, and you are without redemption, and you are on your way to eternal judgment and separation from God. But here's the good news. God eagerly awaits your change of heart, your change of mind. He put his son to a gruesome death so you could avoid it. So let's make it personal. Jesus died to show you his love for you, to make you faithful and holy, to obtain the Father's full inheritance for you, to give you a clear conscience, to turn the worst evil thing in the whole world, that cross, into the most amazing good news. So I want you to receive Jesus today. Open your heart. Admit that you, you are broken, you're a sinner. Receive his forgiveness. You can simply say a prayer that's something like A, B, C, D. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner, A. B, I believe that Jesus did this for me. C, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And D is demonstrate that by following Jesus by getting baptized, by walking with the people of God. And we welcome you. We hope you will join us. And we're going to have some baptism soon. And you get baptized. So if that's you, receive Jesus today. If you're kind of half-hearted, and this is like a wake-up call for you, that you have been half-hearted, return to Jesus wholeheartedly today. Simply say, I confess that I did not receive you, that I did not walk with you, that I did not obey you. Or confess that, you know, I got tired. I got worn out. I got distracted. And if you're walking with Jesus, I'm excited. And all of us today, after this last song, we're going to take communion at home. Get some bread and some juice. Give thanks. The only thing you can do when you realize why Jesus died, the only, there's not much to do except believe and give thanks.
And that's what I want us to do this week. I want us to believe and give thanks and share this good news with somebody else because Jesus died for you and for all of us. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have a final worship song and then uh, we're going to release you. Uh, Royce will release you guys to communion. So Father, we thank you that you died for us. We thank you that it was purposeful, premeditated. We thank you that being the creator and knowing how gruesome it would be, you went for it anyway because we were worth it. I was worth it. You were worth it. It cost him everything, and it cost the father the most excruciating experience of handing his son over to the Romans and the Jews and the cross and the misery of that and the difficulty of that. And the testimony is still there in Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's still there. The tomb is there. The rock where he was crucified is there. It's not a fantasy. It's for real. It's for you and me. It's the best news in the world. So, Father, we thank you. And we ask now as we go to communion that you would help us remember and rejoice, Lord, that your mercy is more, that our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great uh, time now, closing our time with worship. Let's have communion. And uh, let's continue to pray for our country and for our leaders. Amen. See you next week.